Well, good morning. It is good to see you here this morning. If you have your Bible, I ask you to turn to Acts chapter 9. We will continue in, and uh, thank you, Daniel, and the team for leading us this morning. Uh, when Daniel was praying, he, I don't know if you noticed, and I thank him for reminding us that uh, worship's not done just because the music stopped. Uh, that as he prayed, as we continue in worship, this is uh, when the preacher stands up to open up the word of God, uh, he is worshiping. Uh, whenever the saints of God sit under the teaching of the word of God, they are worshiping as well as we ask God to open our eyes and our ears to, to see and hear. And so it's okay, uh, even though Mr. Butch is in the back back there, it's okay to give an amen no matter where you are because that's us as a congregation worshiping the word, or worshiping the Lord through the teaching of his word. And so it's, a, it's an active, it's not just this, uh, you know, inactive learning, it is we are actively engaging the word of God together. So if anything happens this morning that you like, don't feel free to uh, don't feel scared to say amen. If you don't like it, then just keep your mouth to your words to yourself. Uh, nobody wants to hear that. Uh, uh, anyway, Acts chapter nine. We're continuing in uh, the study as we've looked the past two weeks at Saul's life, his conversion, and as we were singing "Man of Sorrows." Uh, if you saw me pull out my phone, I promise you I wasn't texting during that time. Uh, but I do. I have a. I have this mindset that I'm gonna get up there. I'm gonna quote some of those lyrics, and I get up here, and they're not on the teleprompter back there anymore, and I'll forget them. And so I, got, I went to the lyrics real quick online and screenshotted the lyrics to that bridge. Whenever we sang, "Now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed." Uh, this morning we we meet together to to sing that objective truth, that idea that now as a child of God, their debt has been paid. Uh, and maybe we just sometimes, whenever we're singing, we need to remind our minds and our hearts of the objective truth that Calvary has purchased for us, that our debt is paid, that we are free indeed, no matter how our week was this past week, no matter if we would rate our walk with Jesus a 10.0 or a negative five over this past week, that our debt is paid that we are free, that we're free indeed. And what we see in Acts chapter 9 is this man who once was a rebel to God, a really, but he thought he was doing God's work of trying to, trying to uh, persecute the church, to wipe off the church and stop this gospel message. Well, we see a man in Acts chapter 9, a man whose debt had been paid in full. And we see a man whose the curse of sin was no longer uh, on him, that he had been set free. But what we will also see as we walk through Acts chapter 9 and into 10 is that just because that was his objective truth, not everyone was necessarily on board with that. Not everybody really was, they may have been peculiar about this guy named Saul as we continue. So let's read Acts chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 19b. So if you have an ESV, kind of 19 breaks, and there's a subheading, then it continues to 19. So I'm going to pick up right there. It says, for some days 
He was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. You notice that. Like, let's, let's back up for a moment. So the past two weeks, I remember Saul was headed through Damascus with a letter from the chief priest to go into the synagogues and pull out anybody, man, woman, boy, girl, who proclaimed to know, who, who, who confessed to follow Jesus. He literally had a hit list or warns, if you will, to go to the synagogues to pull them out. But what, what we understand as he was getting close to Damascus, the Lord Jesus stopped him in his tracks. We see Paul or Saul confess Jesus as Lord. And then when he gets to Damascus, he's blind, right? And then God last week called a guy named Ananias to go back, uh, go to the house of, of Judas on the road called Straight in Damascus because there would be a guy named Saul there who's blind. And so we saw last week that even though Ananias was like, eh, he still went, uh, he got there and he laid his hands on Saul, called him Brother Saul, and immediately scales fell off his eyes. Uh, he was baptized, and he ate and was strengthened. So notice now, he says, and immediately he began to preach. And so I just want you to see that. Like, it wasn't like he didn't go to seminary. He didn't, like, get, yeah, well, we'll talk about that in a minute. But immediately after this happened, he began to preach Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased in all the more, all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 23, when many days had passed, um, the Jews plotted to kill him, kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates by day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him go down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Pray with me. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for the opportunity you have given us this morning to meet together to open your word. So, God, we come hungry. We come anticipating you to speak. So, God, speak. Give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. It's in Christ's name we pray. Everybody said, amen. What a whirlwind for this dude named Saul, right? Like, he, he's going, uh, he's, got, he's got the Jews on his, on his team to go and uh, persecute these Christians. And then just in a couple of verses, but we'll see a couple of years, uh, but we'll see that in a minute, that uh, things have changed for this dude. Uh, the people who were once more on his team are no longer on his team. The people he were once against is now his team. Now he was the one breathing threats. Now people are breathing threats on him. So what a whirlwind of things that are going on. I want to give you something to think about this morning uh, and, and kind of a lens in which to look at this passage. We're going to do it kind of like we have the past couple of weeks to just kind of narratively walk through because what we see really when we get to Acts chapter 8, really Acts 9, things began to speed up a lot, right? So we spent the first seven chapters in just in Jerusalem, but it felt like there was just these stopping points and these big things we could teach almost every verse to where now as things began to speed up, there will be things that we pull out, but for the most part, it just kind of speeds up the process. Like it just continues to go. And so we'll, we'll address these scriptures in this narrative style to where we're going to walk through it, tell the story, and then we're going to pull out these gospel truths and applications. So we'll 
they'll do the same thing this morning. But here's kind of the lens in which I want you to look at in this scripture. The first thing is that salvation gives us a new nature with new capacities. That's a gospel truth that I'm going to start with this morning uh, that is evident as we read the scripture. Here was this guy who once was breathing threats against the church of God, now is a member of the church of God who's preaching Jesus whom he once persecuted. And so what we see in Acts 9 so far is that on the road to Damascus, and this is kind of something that, that I want us to nail down and to see, whenever Saul was headed to Damascus, there was a moment, there was something that happened that Saul was converted. That salvation happened in a moment. Like it was something for all of us can relate to that it was something that happened right then and right there. We receive a new nature. So the Saul previous to Acts chapter 9 is not the same Saul that we see at the end of chapter 9. He's a new Saul. He's got a new nature. Eventually he's going to get a new name to Paul. But in salvation, he received a new nature. And in that new nature, there became new capacities that he once did not have prior to knowing Jesus. Everybody with me? That's the lens in which we're looking through this text. Those capacities that come with this new nature are fleshed out in what we call, or smart people call, sanctification. Right? So in salvation, there's a moment we receive a new nature that has new capacities. But it takes a lifetime to flesh out those new, new capacities in which we call sanctification. Everybody with me? Uh, this is how Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sanctification. It is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. So in the moment... Saul received a new nature. Everybody with me? For the rest of Saul's life, those capacities that were now his were being fleshed out in what was called, what is called sanctification, which is true for me and you today. Right? At the moment of salvation, you and I receive a new nature. Thanks God for that. Amen. But the rest of our life is fleshing out those capacities in which that new nature has now afforded to us. Right, so what that means is that salvation, I become a new creation, but I'm not perfect. Like I'm, I'm not like just loving the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my might. Now that is the game plan, that is the intent and the purpose, but it takes a long time for, for some of us, I'm going to say this in a little bit, for some of us God just molds, and for some of us he has to chip and chisel. Right, So there's this process that happens in that new nature where God fleshes out these capacities that have been afforded to us through the new nature. Everybody following with me so far? Can I get amen if you are? Okay. The new nature happens in a moment. Like I said, the capacities happen over a lifetime. And it's the same. This is important for us to catch. It's the same with the Spirit. Right At the moment of salvation, what? We receive, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit whom gives us the new nature. Everybody with me? He's the agent of the new birth. Yet at the same time, we see imperatives through the New Testament that says, be filled by the Spirit. So there's a moment in which we're indwelt, but the filling of the Spirit is a lifetime. 
Everybody with me? Everybody's connecting the dots here. As in, the new nature happens in a moment. There's capacities of fleshed out sanctification the rest of our life. At salvation, we receive the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt. We're, we're sealed until the day of redemption, right? But the rest of our life in fleshing out those capacities and the process of sanctification, it requires a being filled by the Spirit daily. That's why we see all throughout definitely the book of Acts, right? We understand that the apostles had already received the Spirit. But over and over again, it says Peter being what? Filled by the Spirit. John being filled by the Spirit. What we understand is literally to be under the control of, as in the, the Spirit is the one that's leading and enabling. It's Galatians chapter 5, where it says, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, all these, right? But what does he say? But walk by the Spirit. So there's this idea that we are indwelt. There's a reality we're indwelt, but at the same time, there is a necessity for us to submit to be filled. Everybody with me so far? Cool. I'm going to get to the text in a second. It is the spirit that transforms our life. And so what we see very quickly in Paul's life is not just salvation, but a transformation of a man who once denied Jesus, now what? Proclaiming Jesus. It wasn't something that just happened past tense. It was something that was continuing to happen and would continue to happen until he met Jesus face to face. And whenever it comes to this sanctification, this, this reaching, these new capacities that the Spirit is working towards us, we look at it specifically in Saul's life that there were some things that this Spirit took away. And there were some things that he just really refined about Saul, right? So think about Saul's, the Holy Spirit, and it's the same for all of us. The Holy Spirit will take, he took Saul's natural strengths and what, what? Refined them. Well, we understand the scriptures that Paul was a, Saul was a natural leader with a strong will. He has strong convictions. He was a self-starter. He was bold and motivated, a gifted thinker and speaker. So what the Holy Spirit did in his life was not get rid of, he just refined those and set them to the right object. Are you with me? But there were other things in his life that he completely took away and replaced it with something else. The hatred that he had, what was replaced with love. The restless, aggressive spirit was replaced with peace. The, the rough, hard nose was replaced with gentleness. And the pride was replaced with humility. And that's the same for all of our life is that there are, there are things in our life which the Spirit refines. Like there are natural things that the way that God has wired you and created you. And he did that for a purpose to be used of his kingdom. But because of sin in your life and my life, there are things that have been tainted that the Holy Spirit will remove and replace them with something else. So we see that happening, really, we can't really just see it right here in the beginning of chapter 9 or end of chapter 9, but looking through Saul's life, we see how God took hatred out and placed in love, this restlessness to have peace. And only the Spirit of God can transform a life like this. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Pause for a moment. I want you to see this because this is, kind of the point of the sermon today. First of all, notice, this is Paul writing later on. Notice he didn't just say, and I am being transformed. I think this is important for us to catch because I think there's some, somebody in here maybe this morning, like in principle, 
you understand that God says he transforms or sanctifies, but you don't believe it for your life. That God can actually change you or is changing you right now. He's transforming you right now. Notice Paul says, but we all, everybody who's named the name of Jesus, everyone who's been born again, we all with unveiled face were beholding the glory of the Lord. Pause where we, I'm sorry I'm going to pause a lot today because I have a lot of thoughts all over the place. Where do we behold the glory of the Lord most practically as child of God? In the Word, by the way. So this transformation in which Paul is talking about, is, it's imperative that we are under the Word. Anyway, we're being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So now let's get to the text. This man named Saul who we're seeing is being transformed, who's being sanctified. Number one, if you're taking notes, what we see is that Saul connects with the fellowship. Remember, prior to this, the reason he was going to these fellowships is to what? To kill, to kill them, to wipe them out, to, 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 to stop them, to drag them out, to persecute them. But what do we see at the, very, or the end of 19? It says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Hey, let's don't move past that too quick. Because that's telling us something here. Is that upon Paul, Saul's conversion, is that there was this deep desire to connect and fellowship with other Christians. These people whom he once persecuted, he now was connecting himself to. I wrote it on the screen like this, a mark of salvation it is, a, is a desire to be in fellowship with other Christians. Which is, up until, I don't know, probably 20, 30 years ago, was never even like a second thought, I don't think. Like, my relationship with the Lord is synonymous, that's not a good word, is closely linked to my relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. But for some 30 years, I guess, there's been this philosophy that has been, you know, adopted by many church people that I could, I love Jesus, but I don't like his church. Like, couldn't be further from gospel truth. And why did, why did, let's practically, why would it be important for Paul to connect with other believers at this moment? Man, he needed other people to celebrate what God just did in his life. He needed to go and be a testimony to, hey, listen, hey, I know I once persecuted you, but here, like, they, he needed people to, to surround him and encourage him and, and to validate it, if you will, looking to his apostleship. And so what's the first thing he does after he gets baptized? First of all, he gets baptized, which if we went back, is that's him associating with these people whom he once despised. And now he's committed himself to them. His hated enemies have become his friends and his former friends, what we see in this chapter is what? They became his enemies. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Like, and actually, whoever does not love abides in death. When 1 John writes that, when 1 John, it's just John. He wasn't 1 John, and there's another guy named 2 John, and another guy named 3 John, all the same John. But when John wrote this, isn't it, important, isn't it crazy that he says, hey, we know that we've passed out of death into life. He could have said anything. He could have said, because we raise our hands on Sunday mornings, uh, because we, we, we tithe every week, or we do this and that. He says, no, we know we've passed from death to life because in that salvation, God has given us a love for his people, for his brother. 
It's not an option. It's not something that I've conjured up on my own. The natural byproduct of becoming a follower of Jesus is that I love the people of God and all their faults and all their brokenness and all their mess ups. I still love them. And that's what, listen to me, that there's a love that you and I can experience through the, through the gospel, through salvation, that the world cannot give or offer. There's a depth to our relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ that cannot be found anywhere else. These are relationships that we're cultivating, listen to me, that last for eternity. So our people, Saul connected to the fellowship. He's like, hey, man, I got to get with my people. These people that I once didn't like are now my people, so I'm getting with them. The second thing we see in this text is that he preaches Jesus as the son of God. So verse 20 says, and immediately, notice that immediately. It wasn't like he went and got trained. Now, there, we'll see in a second, and there's a big time gap between like, when he began preaching to when he actually leaves Damascus, it looks like it's only a couple of days, but it's actually, there's some time he spent training somewhere else. But like, this is coming off the hills of this Damascus road, being baptized, getting with his people. And all of a sudden he's just preaching Jesus. It wasn't that he was, now he was obviously, we, he saw, I've already gave it up. He's, he was trained. He was a great order. He, he could, he could, he could dialogue. He could debate. But what we see is immediately, it wasn't this confirmation process. There was this, he literally just got saved and started preaching Jesus as the son of God. Interesting, if you kind of like little nuggets, here's one for you to chase after. This is the only time Jesus is referred to as the son of God in the whole book of Acts. This one time. We see him as son of man, but only, this is the only time we see him as son of God. So there's just some homework. What is that? Let's dive deeper into that. But how could Saul so quickly go from despising to preaching Jesus as the son of God. Here's the thing, you ready? This is beautiful. Saul knew the Old Testament through and through. Jesus is what unlocked it for him. It referred to many different things. First of all, it was referring to like angels, right? The sons of God, it, sons of God. It referred to like kings. But then through the years, it began to really develop into the picture of the, the, the true king that would come, the, the very son of God, the Messiah, if you will. So what he's saying from the get-go is, hey, listen to me, Jesus is the one that God had promised to come and be the Messiah. I've missed it. We've missed it. Like, he is the one. I hear you, red man. I know that voice. <laughs> Worshiping through the word. <clears throat> son of God, this is all like I said, the only time we see it in Acts. This sonship, whenever looking in definitely in scripture, sonship often refers to this obedience, the, the son of being obedient. Like whenever Jesus is talking to the Jews who were like, yeah, we're sons of Abraham. And Jesus was like, no, you're not. If you're sons of Abraham, you would obey what he's taught you. But you're sons of the devil because you do what he like, desires. This son is oftentimes connected to obedience. And so this picture of son of man, this is just a small nutshell. You can chase this later, is that what he's preaching is this is the very one who has come to fulfill the, the, the plan of God the Father. 
His life was lived in obedience to the will. He wasn't, he wasn't just this lunatic. He was the very Messiah God the Father had sent. So he preaches Jesus as the Son of God immediately. Like I said, the Old Testament was unlocked through Jesus. But here's the picture is that his testimony was doubted. From the get-go, and so maybe somebody's been here before, like God does a work in your life and you get excited about it. And then somebody's lack of passion about it just th- quenches it. Anybody been there before? Like, could you imagine Saul like just stoked like, yeah, Jesus is the son of God. And all he hears is that dude used to persecute us. Reminding him of what he once was. God had promised him that his call to apostleship wasn't going to be easy. And it started off at the very first time he opens his mouth, people were murmuring about who he was. And he, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, <clears throat> it's going to come on the screen, <clears throat> beginning in verse 23, Saul, now being Paul, actually kind of gives accounts of just how tough his life was, if you will, as an apostle. It says, are there servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments and countless beatings and often, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. It was less one because they thought the, the one more would kill him. Uh, five times I received from the hands of the Jews, sorry, 40 lashes of uh, less one. Three times I have been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger in the sea, danger in the, from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often with our food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's this daily pressure on me of my anxiety from all the, all the churches. Who is weak and, I, and, I, and, I, and am I not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indigenous? What we see is that even from the very beginning that Paul's call to follow the Lord was going to be when it started with people doubting, trying to tamper with, trying to destroy. The dude said in the city, in the wilderness, and no matter where I go, things happen. Moving on, the fourth thing that we see in this text is that Saul's increases in strength. We see that in uh, verses 23, sorry, verse 22 says, but increased in more all in the strength. So we think this is the knowledge of the Lord. We believe this is in his spiritual faithfulness, if you will, that even though men were doubting, he grew stronger, that whenever things that seemed would quench the fire actually made the fire grow bigger and brighter. And in doing so, he confounded the Jews. Who does that remind you of? There was once somebody else that in their debates, in their talks, confounded the Jews. Anybody remember? A name of Stephen, the same man who Paul killed just a couple chapters earlier. He confounded the Jews, and now what we're seeing is ultimately Saul really taking the, the, the ropes from Stephen, if you will, of debating the Jews. Because what we've seen in the past couple chapters is work in Samaria and Ethiopia. Union. Now we're back to the Jews, and who is it that is now confounding or, or debating, convincing the Jews as Christ the Messiah? The one who 
couple chapters earlier approved the execution of the man who was doing the same thing. Hope that's, anyway, let's keep going. It fueled his strength. Now you get to verse 25. It says, when many days had passed. And that's kind of could be uh, you know, confusing, if you will, deceiving. Because we had this picture, all right, he's preaching, people are now believing, and then a couple of days later, he escapes. He gives us a, really an account. We have to turn somewhere else. I should have told you to turn there. It's going to come up on the screen. But in Galatians chapter 1, we understand that this wasn't like a day. And so stay with me. This may, if this is boring to you, I'm sorry. Maybe the Holy Spirit will give you a better heart. But anyway, <laughs> Galatians 1.15, he says this. This is Saul recounting of his own story. He says, verse 15, he says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, so this is, he's talking about the Damascus Road, verse 16, was pleased to reveal his own son to me in order that I might preach among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and I returned again to Damascus, verse 18. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem. Everybody with me? All right, so he's given the story. Actually, if you now look at the, back to the second Corinthians, uh, Chapter 11, picking back up in uh, verse 30. It says, If I must boast, I will not boast of the things that I will show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who he has blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, here we are, the governor under King Eretus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and he escaped my hands. So there's a three-year time gap between verses 22 and 23. That we believe that at some point after this, that, that he went down to Arabia, and then for, for three years he received training, ultimately straight from the Lord, uh, understanding of the Lord. And then he, when he comes back to Damascus, he's more on fire than he's ever been, so much so that we understand that the Jews wanted him out and the Arabians wanted him out. Like he, he had caused so much frustration in preaching his Jesus that they said, all right, we got to get rid of him. So he now escapes. What we see, the last thing, is that he escapes in verses 23 through 25. That the disciples there helped him escape by lowering him down in a basket. So there's your narrative through the story. Well, what's the, what's some application for us this morning? The first thing is this. Connect to God's people. Like we have, that has to be a direct application to this passage. Right, Saul was the outcast, definitely at this moment. People may not trust him. Imagine the, the pride that had to be swallowed, if you will, of walking into the fellowship of those believers for the first time for Saul. Well, there's going to be people saying, I told you so, or there's gonna be, they're going to be looking at me. They're going to be judging me. And we see that it's imperative for me and you to connect to God's people. The second thing is to preach Christ. You don't have to be trained and certified. Preach Jesus. And listen to me, the more you study the scripture, the more Jesus makes sense. And don't shy away from the Old Testament. The more you read the Old Testament, the more power your gospel presentations will be. 
Man, one of the most revolutionary things for me, and I hope I teach it this way now, is seeing scripture from one story from Genesis to Revelation, and it's all the redemptive story of God that has it unfolded through human history, that the, the Old Testament was always pointing to Jesus. The gospel says he's here. The rest of the book up until Revelation says, now that he's seated on high. And he's reigning and he's victorious. And Revelation says he's coming back. The whole book is about him. He's the point. So don't shy away from the Old Testament because that's his, Paul's power and his authority and his understanding of the gospel was deeply rooted in his understanding of actually the Old Testament. Third application. We're going to land on a big one in a second. I'm just going to fly into these. Number three is don't be discouraged by the doubts of others. We see that in the text. That's a very easy general application to this text. Here's the big one, number four. Believe God for the process of transformation in your own life. Notice I underlined process there. Because it's a process, y'all. Sin runs deep. Flesh runs strong. And our sanctification process, like I said, some of us, he molds, some of us, he chips and chisels. That's up to our submission to the spirit, by the way. <clears throat> it's a process. Sanctification, there's some, some big truths for you. Sanctification, which means the being transformed, as we read it earlier, into the image of Christ where we can resist sin, die to sin, and live unto righteousness. It is both positional and it's progressive. Like this is like big, big doctrinal things that we need to grab on. My sanctification is something that has, is seen in the past, but also something that's ongoing. At salvation, that moment when something happens, that new nature, I am sanctified, like past tense. I am set apart. I am, I am called out, if you will. But at the same time, I am currently being sanctified. Uh, Hebrews says it like this, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Are you with me? So sanctification, this idea of transforming, being transformed, being changed, if you will, is something that has its root in a position as in being placed in Christ's salvation. But through life, it is fleshing out those capacities we get in the new nature. Go back to where we started. Right with me? And Hebrews 10 teaches us this. It says, by one offering, by a single offering, that, that offering we're talking about is the cross of Calvary. Everybody with me? By that one offering, what is happening? He has perfected for all time, so that's past tense. By his death, he is, for those who place their faith in him, he has perfected you. By one offering, this is the sufficiency of the cross. By one offering, you are now been perfected. But check out what else that payment is doing. It says, for all time, those who are being sanctified. The cross purchased both our, <laughs> our justification and it purchased our sanctification. Like at the cross of Christ, Jesus didn't just die to save you from hell. He did. 
to get you to heaven. But at the cross of Christ, it's so sufficient and so powerful, he even paid for the transformation that the Holy Spirit's doing in your life now. It's paid for. Matter of fact, it will be done in your life as a child of God. Philippians 1.6 says what? For I am sure of this, that he who began a work in you will what? Bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's a bunch of things going on here. He began a work that moment. He will bring it to completion. And when we bring it to completion? At the day of Jesus, which means until I die or Jesus comes back, he's still sanctifying my life. These are objective truths. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. When were you created in Christ Jesus? At salvation. Before then, we were lost. I die, I'm going to go to heaven. What the perseverance of the saints means, that when God saves somebody, he will sanctify that person. He will draw holiness out of that person. He will draw righteousness out of that person. He will transform that human being into the image of his son in life and or in death. As in the the Christian life is is this for sure, but more than what happens is, is that God, and so here's why I'm saying believe it. Believe it, believe that promise for you because some of you go, I don't see it. Like if we were honest, we would say, I'm not, man, I'm discouraged by my own sanctification. I'm discouraged by the the lack of transformation in my life. A lot of times it's an unperceived growth. Kind of like this belly that I've got right here. I would have never knew it was there apart from pictures in a mirror. Then all of a sudden I was like, well, I've gained about 20 pounds. And a lot of the Christian life is the Holy Spirit, as we're submitting to the Spirit, as we're walking with there, it's not just this zap, it's this lifetime of God removing pride and placing in humility, removing hatred and, and placing in love, removing bitterness and placing in forgiveness. He's, he's working and he's moving because why? He has promised to do so. Trust him, believe in it because he's, he's promised it to us. And the reality is the more he transforms us, the more we're going to feel like he's not. Because the more he transforms us, the more that I see my sin. And I realize I'm not as, I'm not as good as I thought I was. The more I'm aware of the sin that's going on and the more I fall short, the more sensitive I become to those things. Second Corinthians 3.18 says, We all, with unveiled haste, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. All of us. He has promised to sanctify you. Listen to me. If we can trust him, if we can trust him, that he'll get us safely from here to heaven for eternity, I think I can trust him on this side of it. So let God do his work in your life.
Stop resisting it. Let God do your work. Say, Justin, I'm not, I'm not moving. I'm not as far along as I thought I'd be. Trust this process. Those, those things that you think may not be a big deal that are hidden deep within your heart and your mind, let those things come about. Like, like, let, let him unflesh those things. He's changing. He's transforming. Let God do his work. But this is all dependent upon you and I being filled by the Spirit. By us not being indwelt, that's happened past tense, but that each day I am submitting, I'm surrendering to the Spirit's leadership, that I am submitting myself to Him. So I'm going to leave you with four practical ways in order to do this. For the child of God, make being filled by the Spirit your priority. I understand that sanctification is, is the work of the Spirit. So don't hear me say that. Like, I'm not saying that we have to work out our own stuff, which Scripture does tell us to work out our own salvation with fear and truly, but I'm not going there. <clears throat> sanctification is of the Lord. Everybody agrees with me, right? But I also understand that I can't just sit here idly and he's going to zap me into the image of Jesus. So there are practical steps that I must take as the child of God in unison in leadership of the Spirit. Everybody with me? I'm not preaching legalism here. I'm preaching practical obedience. And if you think it's legalism, just because it's going to be, anyway, inconvenient for you. Number one is make being filled by the Spirit your priority. As in each and every day, we pray, Lord, Spirit, fill. Remember, this is some magical, this isn't some magical, you know, experience where glitter falls from heaven. It's literally. Spirit, let me submit my will to your way. Obe obeying the voice of the Spirit, which is in every person who is a follower of Jesus. We submit our will to him. That's our priority, to be filled, empowered by the Spirit. Second, is to develop a sensitivity to sin in our own life. When I talk about sin here, we're forgiven of that. my own life and my own journey with Jesus, developing a sensitivity to my own sin. Which is good, number three, we'll do both of those, study the word. <laughs> the word will both fill you with the spirit and increase your sensitivity to sin. Fourthly, this is churchy, so don't judge me, but don't grieve the spirit. You know the spirit, Holy Spirit is personal. The Holy Spirit, he has emotions and feelings. And to grieve the Spirit with the means to disobey the Spirit. All right, so here's our priority. Spirit, fill me. Spirit, lead me. Make me aware of my sin. Because listen to me, sin is what ceases the filling of the Spirit. So two plus two, if I'm walking in sin, I'm not going to be filled by the Spirit. Right with me? So we got, God, make me aware to these things. I'm studying your word and he's gonna illuminate my eyes and he's gonna fill me with the spirit. He's going to make me be sensitive and as the spirit leaves, with all the effort that I have, I'm gonna try not to grieve the spirit or resist the spirit. 
four very practical things that are not legalistic at all. That if we walk this way, we won't even notice it. We may not even see it, but the Lord will sanctify us practically. We will find ourselves with more compassion. We'll find ourselves with more forgiveness and love and zeal for the things of God. We'll find ourselves more homesick for heaven and tired of this place if we walk with the Lord. Luke, you okay over there? I got you out here for a minute. You ain't cramping? Okay. I'm gonna pray. If you need to pray with me, I'll be standing in the back. Whatever the Lord's leading you to, child of God, no matter how you feel this morning, if you're born again, God has promised you that he will sanctify you. He who began a work in you will complete that work. Now it may take you, even today, confessing your own rebellion. Because if, if the Lord's not sanctifying, it's not because he stopped. It's because we, we rebelled at some point. Will you return to the Lord? Will you confess? So I've got to be encouraged this morning that you may not be Billy Graham, but you're not who you used to be. Because the Lord is working in your life and changing you, transforming you into the image of a son. And he will until Jesus returns or we go home first. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word, your good word that speaks, that is alive, that is active. God, we thank you that we can look at a guy named like Saul who was once a blasphemer a persecutor of the church who you began to use to be your main mouthpiece to get the gospel to the Gentiles. This transformation, this new nature with this new capacities that all points to the work of grace. Got everyone sitting in here that names the name of Jesus were all works of grace. We thank you for grace. If there's anyone in here this morning who has not trusted in you in salvation, God, today that you will draw them to yourself. As we close this service, God, may we respond in a way that is glorifying and honoring to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.